Good morning. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Our passage today is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Whichever one, whichever one works. Thank you. I'll get better at this, I promise. Now, for those of you that woke up this morning working through your brain, were thinking, you know what I need? You know what I really need today? I need some marital advice from a guy who's only been married for two years. <laughs> for those of you that said that this morning, drink a cup of coffee first. But also, for those of you that said that, you are in luck today, because that is what we are going to be going through today. Um, this passage is a, I have a very interesting relationship with this passage in particular. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. It's one that many times you'll hear going through pre-marriage counseling. It's one that you'll, you'll hear learning and just scattered throughout different times. You come in and out of the church or you're in Bible studies or whatever. And it's one of those passages that when it's said, there's almost this eerie cloud that forms over it. There's almost this, there's this tension in the room, and there's especially tension in the preacher that has to get up or gets to, your words are very important, gets to get up and talk about it. It's, it's an interesting one, especially just, I, had, I, I, had, I got to look into this passage very in-depth in my time in school, and I was required to make a uh, research paper on it. It was just one of those assignments you get when your professor says, I know how I can make um, this student's life very difficult. I'll give them this one. It's just one of those passages. It's a difficult one. It's a challenge. And it's, it's been one that I have had serious struggle in wrestling with because in some ways, in many ways, the way that it sounds on face value just by opening the Bible and looking at it, it sounds a little wrong. It doesn't go along with what the world may be saying. It doesn't seem to indicate the best way of, of doing things. It goes against many different ideas that we may have today, and it comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with experiences of, of people who have heard misinterpretations of this passage and have found themselves in very, very bad places. And so this is an interesting one, but I think it is so important, and it is a, such a good passage. I want us to spend some time this morning, if we will, stepping into this gloomy cloud that may be forming over this passage, and at least by how I'm presenting it to you. And I want us to, to be able to break through that gloomy cloud and see the beauty that God has in this passage. I, the, the image that's coming to my mind is the, as we've been noticing, our air quality has been going up and down over the past week or so. We've been seeing the, the clouds, and they've been, and they're, they're not there necessarily right now. I don't know what the air quality is right now. But there was, it was this just kind of gloomy and foggy, and you weren't supposed to go outside and whatever. And I remember when they were going away earlier this week, and the, the sun was coming out, and it was bright, and it was beautiful. And I think that that's, what I want us to do with this passage. 
I want us to step into the deep end here. I want us to get into the history and the, the, the words and the stuff that makes Bible nerds go crazy. Because I think all of that is so important to understand the beauty that God is trying to show us in this passage. So with all that being said, what I think this passage does for us, and this is our big idea for this morning, is that this passage is telling us that marriage reveals the gospel revealed. I'll say it again. Marriage reveals the gospel revealed. That's what we're going to try to pull out of this passage. And I am also going to warn you, I had a a professor in school that would talk about when he would be in the middle of class, he would have what's called eat broccoli first moments. Stick with me here. It's where you, he, would, he would come up to a very um, t- maybe technical, maybe sounding boring history, philosophy, crazy different little words and things that don't seem to make much sense. He'd say, we got to know this. We got to eat our broccoli first before we can have the dessert later. So I will let you know when we are going to have some eat the broccoli first moments just as a as a preface and as a a warning for this passage. So, with all that being said, let's go ahead and actually read what we're going to talk about. Then I'm going to pray for all of us. And as I'm praying, I will ask you to pray for me. And then we're going to see what the Lord has for us this morning. So if you would please uh, read with me. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you please join me in prayer? Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. Um, We come to you as one body, as your body, Lord. Lord, I come to you this morning in many ways feeling ill-equipped, not fully prepared, lacking wisdom and experience. Lord, help me this morning as I seek to unpack a a text that is, in some ways, very complicated for us in the day we live in. Lord, I pray for those of us that are here. I pray for those with marital pain right now. Whether just small disagreements that come and go. 
large-scale arguments that may have lasted for days, weeks, months, or even years. I pray for the hurt in this room that has happened from the struggles that go through when two people try to become one. I pray that this passage would both challenge and encourage us, convict and encourage us, where we need conviction and encouragement. Lord, would we see your beauty in this text? Lord, would you use the words that I say in the way that you see fit? I thank you, Lord, for all that you do. Forgive us of our sins. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. We're going to start with a eat your broccoli first moment. I told you I'd warn you about this. We're going to start with an eat your broccoli first moment because what Paul is doing in this passage, I think sometimes when we read the scriptures, we, we forget about the fact that Paul was writing in a specific time with specific things in a specific culture that was happening. We, we many times read the Bible like it's in a vacuum, like it's just by itself. But Paul was in many ways not just writing this generally. He didn't think as he came to this point in the passage, oh, well, I feel like I should probably, probably should mention husbands and wives, just probably wouldn't be a bad idea. I would make the suggestion that what Paul is doing in this passage is he's carrying on a sense of a cultural tradition of talking about something known as household codes. Household codes. If you've not heard that before, let me describe that for you. All, many, as far back as Greek um, philosophers went all the way back to a guy by the name of Plato. We'll get to him in a moment. They all had their own idea about how families and households should be structured. They all had their own idea, much like today. Everyone has their own idea of how households, how marriages, how parenting, how all of this should be handled. And in many ways, that has kind of continued into the modern day with our own ideas and our own books of, of five tips to save your marriage, and this way will grow intimacy, and that's how you get your kids to finally listen to you. All these different books and are in some way a tradition that has started way back with a guy named Plato, all the way to today, and they all focus around how in the world are we supposed to live together and get along? It's an age-old question because it's an age-old struggle. And everyone had their own ideas of how to do this, but it started in many ways with a guy named Plato. For those of you that know Plato not just as a toy for children, but as a Greek philosopher, Plato was a guy that lived, I've got a lot of notes for this one, this is going to be great. Plato was a guy that lived in the year 428 BC, about 428 years-ish before Christ was born. He in many ways started a tradition of Western philosophy. In many ways, the things that we believe in our world today go all the way back to him. He's an important dude. And he had his own way that he thought you should manage your household. He had his own wisdom, his own ideas, his own strategy. Would you like to hear it this morning? Obviously, you want to hear what Plato has to say this morning. Plato was a guy very commonly, and, and that was, he had a very common mindset of people in his day and age, and a very common mindset of a Greek view of men and women. The Greeks were 
not entirely fully kind to the women that were with them. The Greeks didn't really have a high view of women. They didn't hate women necessarily, but they didn't have a high view. They definitely did not have an equal view of women. Plato, in his book, The Republic, which if you have read that book, go outside, please, because that's a very old book. In his book, The Republic, he goes through how a society should be run, how a republic should be run, and he spends some time talking about men and women working and the different things that they can do. And he has this quote in talking about all these different uh, political offices and educational offices and even household responsibilities, different things that people can do. And he had this to say about women in the Republic, Book 5, Section 455C. He says this, Do you know then of anything practiced by mankind in which the masculine sex does not surpass the female? On all these points. This is a rhetorical question meant to indicate obviously not. I'm speaking from him. This is not Preston. This is Plato. The P's may confuse you, but I promise I'm telling you what he said. Plato had the idea that men and that women were not unequipped to handle things, but that men were more equipped than women were. And so he said women should submit to their husbands because they are not as capable of performing normal tasks that run and function a household, a community, a society, a government at large versus men. And this is the starting point of Greek and Roman tradition. And you see this all the way through even to the point of Paul's day. I'm going to mention to you a second philosopher. If a preacher ever mentions three, step out, leave. I'm only going to mention two, okay? We're only going to go with two. I'm going to mention this guy. He was born in 46 AD, around the time that the church had started. This guy's name was Plutarch. You may have heard of him before, but if you haven't heard of him, that's okay. That's okay. Very niche kind of guy. But he was a guy that lived in Greece around the time of the church starting, around the time of the church starting within the general amount of years. And he was born in 46 A.D., and he died in 113 A.D. And so he was in that time frame. He would have been what a popular voice that people living in Greece and in Rome, in the Roman Empire in general, would have heard about. They would have known him. Christians who were walking about in their day in Ephesus would have heard of this guy named Plutarch. He was kind of a big deal at the time. And he wrote a specific letter that's called Advice to Bride and Groom. He wrote it to a couple, a young man and a young woman who had just gotten married, and he did as the title suggests. He was giving advice for how they should live their lives. And he wasn't as harsh as Plato. He was still harsh, not harsh, but he was still not fully equal to representative of women. He was in his own culture, and he did have encouragements of, of submission, and he had this specifically to say. This is in uh, paragraph 19 of the advice to the bride and groom. I'm going to read this to you word for word. He said this, 
A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. How does that sound, ladies? Ooh. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. That's a direct quote. Basically saying, in essence, it says to the wives, your responsibility is to connect with your husband's friends, but not just his friends, but his gods. When a man and a woman came together in marriage in the Greco-Roman world, the woman was encouraged to turn away from whatever god she was worshiping if that meant that they shared different religious beliefs. And that comment where it talks about superstitious, where is it? Outlandish superstitions, stealthy and secret rites, queer rituals, Christianity would have been included in that list. And this Greek philosopher told wives to forsake her own religious beliefs and to follow after her husband's. We've been talking about the women in the household codes. Men were given a responsibility to love their wives. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they're also given a responsibility to be self-controlled. Don't cheat on your wife. Okay, good advice. Good to know. And they were also said that they were to be in charge of the household. They were running things. They were controlling things. And, and, and Plato and, and Plutarch both connected it to a king running a kingdom. Husbands are supposed to run their households as a king were to run his kingdom with sovereign and complete authority over the decisions that were happening. So this is a bit of the context that we find ourselves in as we are jumping into this passage. The other thing I want to make sure to mention is that even in this world, both Plato and Plutarch knew that not everyone fit into these categories in the ancient world of husbands and wives, of, of parents and, and children, and even a little bit later of slave owners and slaves. Is that people didn't fit into these niche categories. It wasn't that everybody was going to be married and live 40 to 50 years, and one of you would die off and you'd be a widow or a widower and you'd live the rest of your life. That wasn't a common thing that would happen. Remember, people in this day didn't live very long. So a lot of people had had children that did not survive childbirth. A lot of people had spouses that died at a young age. And so these are all different pieces and parts of the puzzle that we can bring together as we look at this passage. And here Paul is adding his own insights, I think, with the inspiration of God into this equation. So that's our broccoli moment done. Well done. You made it. We start off in verses 22 through 24, and this is specifically the instructions given to wives in the marriage relationship. I'll read this section in its entirety. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
There's a couple of things we have to mention here. First, verse 22 does not not have the word submit in it. It says it in the English. It does not say it in the Greek. Verse 21 has the word submit in it. Verse 21, if you'd remember back from last week, said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the ways that we show the Spirit is at work inside of us is when we submit to each other out of reference for Christ. In many ways, in verse 22, it says, wives also, based on that, submit to your own husbands. This is one of the areas where the English Bible is a little funky for us. It's not, it's not ruling out that word. I think that word still applies here, but it's carrying over from verse 21 to 22. It's saying, just as that was there, so also you do that in this context. We get to the reasons why. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This verse here has had a lot of ink spilled on it because the exact meaning of what we're trying to say here as the reasoning for wives submitting to their husbands is incredibly important. Verse 23 mentions that husbands are the head of the wife. Husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. People have different ideas of what this word head means. It's a Greek word. The the Greek word is kephale. Kephale. You're learning a little bit of Greek this morning. This word, when used in Greek language around the time of the scripture, had different meanings. And so we're trying to figure out exactly which one of those meanings applies to this specific word in the scripture. One of those meanings was a literal human head. Head, your head. Most of the time in the scripture, when the word kephale is used, it is used to refer to a physical human head. There are other times when this word kephale is used to imply a source of something. The source of a river could be a mountain. The source of something could be something from, it's a cause and effect kind of language. And so it is not deeming, and so that is, that is another way that it could be used. A third way is authority. Christ as the authority of the church is the head of the church. Husbands as the authority of the wife, as the head of the wife. Again, a lot of ink has been spilled on this because there's a lot of different ways that people will take this. As I've been looking through all of these different ideas, and again, this is, this is one that I have struggled with personally in my own faith walk, in my own journey of understanding what the Bible says when we we're, we're looking at re-surrender. It said that God's judgments are true. What exactly is he meaning by that? How am I going to, what do we do with this, and how do we trust that God's judgments are true? This is one that I have struggled with in many ways, even well before I got married and even after I've gotten married. And I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. As we look at the secular Greek around this verse, it seems like a majority of it, again, is speaking of a physical human head, and also, after that, the next part would be implying a source, not an authority. When we look into the scriptures, however, I think we get a bit of a different picture. This is not the first time that this word kephale is used, even in the book of Ephesians. There are two other times that this word is used. The first time is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Please flip over really quick to be able to see that. Verse 1, 
or chapter 1, verse 22. This is us talking about Christ. We'll start in verse 20. That he being the father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Here it is. And he put all things under his feet and gave him being Christ, as head over all things to the church. That's the exact same word as Ephesians chapter 5. And when we look at the context of this, we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, seating him on the right hand of the throne of God, giving him all power and authority and dominion over all things, putting him as head over the church. After talking about being, in, being over the authorities and the heavenly places and things of that nature. When I hear that passage, I think that Paul is implying an authority, a leadership. God is in Paul, or Christ is in charge of all things. He is in sovereign and in control of all things, including the church, including all other authorities, dominions, things of this world, evil things that we might think of. God is sovereign. God's in charge. That's the first time that this verse this is used. The second time is that it's used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Let's see here. We'll start in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, here it is, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together in every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you notice the growing language in that verse? There's a lot of things coming together, things knitted together, things growing up, things, things coming from. I think that the implication here is that this is a source thing. I think that's, a, that's what Paul is trying to say, is that the source of Christ is that we grow up into Christ as our source, as the thing that we latch onto with all of our heart and our might and the strength that we have possession of and the Spirit takes care of everything else and, and helps us to grow into Christ. And also, Though I think that that has a source main meaning, I don't think you can also exclude this idea of Christ being in authority. I think when we look at the different words and the, the nuances and the Greek and, the, and the, the extra biblical sources and go back to Plato and Plutarch and all these other people, different things, we can get very, very lost in a lot of different ways that we forget about the fact of what God is and how he is described in so many ways throughout the scripture. I think we have to be careful with that, though I think those things are very good and necessary and helpful for us to understand what is being said. And when we look all throughout the rest of the scripture, and even outside of the scriptures, there is a sense of even when these word is meaning source, not authority, there still is this connotation of authority. There's other points that this word is used for kings being the source for their nation. 
I don't think you can separate out that source and that authority. I think that when I look at this verse, and when I look at the, in other places in the scriptures and bringing it back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, my, Im, my imperfect, sinful self in many different ways who is far from understanding the scriptures as well as I should, I think that what Paul is saying when he is talking about this word head is he is implying authority in a marriage. That is what I see in that. There are lots of Christians that disagree with me on that, that we're going to spend eternity in heaven with, and that we are co-workers and co-partners in the gospel. And we need to make sure that we recognize that this is a, a thing that has incredible struggle, like I said before. But I do think that that is what this verse is saying. If you have other comments or other ideas or other theories, or as you've looked and studied in your own way, please come to me and talk to me. Please, I want to learn about that. I don't know all of it, and I don't ever want to say I've got it figured out. So if you have other ideas or other verses that I haven't seen in my own study, please do let me know. But what I see here is that there is a sense of the wife submitting to the husband as some sort of a role of authority over her in a marriage. But with that being said, let's look at why. Why did God design it that way? Why did God say that's how it's supposed to be? I think the why question is so important for us here. Let's read the part again, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice why. In the Greek and Roman world, wives were supposed to submit to husbands because their husbands were better at doing things than they were. Back in that day, they submitted because according to the thinking back then, again, not, not coming from Preston here, is that anything that a woman could do, a man could do better. Anything, I can, anything you can do, I can do better. Anything I can do better than you. That sort of a thinking. Paul isn't going along with that thinking. Paul's saying that wives should be submitting to their husband, not because of anything good that he is. Wives don't need me to tell them that. Not because of how perfect and how much better he is at things than they are, but because of what their marriage represents. Because their marriage is so much bigger. Marriage is so much bigger than two people coming together and professing their love to each other and to the world and maintaining that marital integrity. It's, it, that's a big, that's a part of it. That's an amazing part of it. But it's so much bigger. Paul doesn't say, wives, submit because you're inferior. Paul says, submit because of what God wants to show the world through you. That being what it looks like for the church to obey Christ. Submit to your husband as we, the church, submit to Christ. Marriage 
reveals, the gospel revealed. And I think it also helps us to see the submission that Christ had to bring the gospel into existence. There's several different passages here. I'll list a, I've listed a few of them. John chapter 6, verse 38, Matthew 26, 39, Philippians 2, 5 through 9. I won't read them to you right now, but all of these have to do with examples of Christ saying, I am not doing what I will. I am not doing my own desire. I am doing the desire of the Father who has sent me. I am, Christ is submitting himself to God, following God's plan, leading up until the cross and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One of those, part, those pastors, Matthew 26, is the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ is saying, Lord, if it is within your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, he said, but I will do it. Not my will, but yours be done. Christ submitted himself to the Father. I think one of the difficulties with this passage is submission is a bad word in our world. Submission brings with it the baggage of a sense of inferiority, incapableness, and oppression. And unfortunately, the church has contributed to that baggage at different points in history. There is a history of interpretation on this passage that you can look back on. For those of you that really want to, you can look back on. And people from hundreds, even thousands of years ago, said in this passage that, men, that women are supposed to submit to men because they are more easily tempted to sin than men are. Funny enough, many of those commentaries that were written a thousand years ago were written by men, not women. I think that might say something as well. That's not biblical. And unfortunately, we have proposed a bit of that baggage that we have with this word submission. It's a dirty word, and that's partly our fault as the historic church. But when we look at Christ... When we look at his ministry in this world, he practiced submission, following the guide of the Father. And that brought about the gospel in our world. That brought about the cross and the resurrection and the day of Pentecost and the canon, the scriptures being written through the ministry of the Spirit and the promise of one day having complete and total freedom from sin. All of that happened because Christ submitted. God is in the business of showing that submission is not something that is done through inferiority, incapableness, or oppression. It's not something that needs to have that connotation. And this is a chance for our wives, our ladies, to remind us and show us that. And I do recognize up front that I am a guy that is saying this. I will fully admit that. I am a guy that is saying this. I don't know the struggle that this is. I know what it's like to submit. I'm told to submit in verse 21, submitting to others out of reverence for Christ. If I'm not submitting, the Spirit's not working in me. I know what that is like, but I don't know what this unique, unique submission is for our wives, for our ladies. I don't know that. And I don't know that struggle if sometimes our wives are told to submit to their husbands and their husbands may not be making the best choices. I don't know that struggle either. These are hard issues. And I think that these are some of the reasons 
why we as married people need to recognize that we struggle with this and help each other out. I think I've been tempted even in my own marriage to try to figure this out on my own. To try to figure out how to do this. I don't think that's how God wants this thing to go anyways. But I do believe, as the song said, God's judgments are true. This is what I believe that it says. And it says that, she is, that the wife is not to submit because she is inferior to him, but she is to submit because of what God wants to do through them, which is to be a testimony of Christ and his submission to the Father that led to the gospel message and as an example of our submission to Christ as our Savior. Some extra thoughts that I want to make sure that I mention here. The wife is never commanded to obey or submit to her husband when he is suggesting something sinful. Women are never told to follow their husbands into sin. We submit as, as the church submits to Christ, who is holy and good. And in the marital context, husbands are not all holy and good. Again, I don't need to tell anybody that. This passage is also not saying that if someone is in an abusive marriage relationship, that they must sit and accept it. Another way this passage has been misinterpreted is to suggest that even if a woman finds herself in an abusive marriage and something with domestic abuse or whatever that they may be, that she just has to sit and suffer through it and just be there. I don't think that that's what this passage is saying either. I think that that is something that we, that is a misunderstanding of what submission means. That's submitting to something that's sinful. That's not what God tells us to do. We are not to submit to something that is sinful and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to husbands. And this is, a, again, a baggage that has happened. You can find books out there right now that'll tell women, if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to re- sit there and not tell anybody and deal with it. I don't think that's what this passage is saying either. And I will offer that if there are any abusive relationships that are here, either in person or online, please get some help. Talk to somebody about that. I get the sensitivity of that subject and the complications that can come from that. That's something that the church can help with. I think also what this does is this puts, this gives our ladies a very high bar for who they should be looking for if they are pursuing marriage. What I'm saying is what, I'm say- what this passage is saying is that women are supposed to find for them a spouse that is going to lead them closer to Christ, that is going to emulate Christ in their lives, that is going to live a godly, loving example. And if there's something that I've, whenever this passage has come up, it's come up maybe once or twice since I've been a youth pastor here in youth group, and it's something that I've challenged our, our ladies with in youth group, it's interesting giving dating advice. It's just it's kind of weird. But one of the things that I've told some of our ladies in youth group is that if you see a guy and you're interested in him, you have to ask the question, do you think he can lead you closer to God? If he can't, he's not worth it. He's not. He's not. That's not how God designed marriage. That's not how God designed us to function. I think it's a good thing that there is that high bar that comes from 
this. And so those are some extra thoughts for the conversation of women submitting to husbands. There's other complicating factors in this. I can't say it all. I'm already over time. We're going to be over time. I'm just letting you know. Someone should probably let the kids' workers know that too. Somebody. That'd be great. Um, There's more to say about this. There's always more to say about this. Please do come and talk about this. I don't know this one perfectly, and I will sit in a recognition of humility that this is a hard topic and one that I will struggle to understand. But that is what that part of the passage says. Now we get to the majority of the passage. This is on husbands, verses 25 through 33, says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the big part of this passage, and I think it's interesting that our modern eyes looking asks for more detail for the instructions for wives, yet Paul gives more instructions for the husband. Why, Paul, why did you do this to us? That makes it difficult for me living in 21st century U.S. that reads that and says that's countercultural, that's wrong. I think that Paul emphasized and spoke a lot more into the role of husbands is because in his day, that was the countercultural piece. That was the part that was that as husbands and wives would have been sitting in the church in Ephesus and, and someone would have been reading that letter to them, that was the part that would have made the husbands squirm. Because that's not what they were told they were supposed to do by their society, by the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world had an expectation on men to be strong, monarch, tyrannical type leaders who were out of the house often, who were off in the public forums, who were making a name for themselves militarily, politically, culturally, whatever. They were told to go out, make it big. And that was how they served their family, was to go out, get a great job, bring glory to your name, and have kids. That was the job. Oh, and also don't cheat on your wife. That was the job of the husband. You, it's, it seems semi-comical to read it back in the day. And here, Paul doesn't look out. Paul looks in. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That word love there, it's, Christ, it's, it's many Christians' favorite word, whether they realize it or not. That Greek word is agape. You may have heard that word before. That is, a, the Greek word had def- several different words for different forms of love. Whenever the household codes of the ancient world told husbands to love their wives, it was what was called a phileo love, a different word for love than agape. Phileo had a common friendship, friendly love, a brother to brother. Phileo is where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's where we get that word from. Agape has with it a sense of complete and utter sacrificial love. This Paul 
is making history in this book as he was the first recorded author that we have. And we have a lot of recorded authors of his time. He was the first recorded author to tell husbands to sacrificially love their wives. This is breaking ground. It it may not feel like it, but this was breaking ground. This forced the attention of the husbands not to look out at the things he could accomplish, but to look in at his own marriage and to give everything he had for his wife. This is, if, if this command were not here, the command from earlier for wives submitting to husbands would be terrifying in many more ways. This This shows the attitude the husband is supposed to have, that being the attitude of Christ and towards his church. Let's keep talking a little bit more, because Paul continues to be edgy and countercultural. When he talks about loving your wives as Christ loved the church, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he being the husband might present, or he being Christ might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is how the husband is supposed to love his wife, is to love her in a way that, that, that presents her and that, that helps her to grow closer to God in the same way that Christ does for you and me. I want you also to notice the cleaning language here. The cleaning, the washing of water. They may present her in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. These are words that were commonly used back in the day when we're talking about doing laundry. You know, and we think of that today. You don't want wrinkles in your clothes. You don't want stains in your clothes. You don't want spots and issues and whatever. Paul, I think, in many ways is purposefully using words that would have been associated for women at the time. Women needed to do the laundry and to cook the food and to be there for the house and to raise the children. I think Paul's using specifically terms that related to feminine tasks of the time for husbands on purpose. He's completely reorienting the task of husbands. No, husbands, this doesn't mean you got to go do laundry now. But what this is saying is that all of those those different words that were used that you looked at and you thought, that's a woman's job? Well, no, that's your job, but to your spouse. That's your job, but to your spouse. Paul continues. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This is an interesting text. This is an interesting part of this passage, because it's, what it's doing is it's going back to the Old Testament view of marriage. And it's, we see it later on where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Many times in marriage, well, I think in marriage in general, The hardest part is two becoming one, is two people who have had two different lives, two different experiences, two different struggles, trying to figure out practically how to live with each other, how to get along with each other, how to work through their quirks and their struggles and their ups and their downs and their goods and their bads. But I think this is a reminder that when 
Husbands are commanded to love their wives. They're not commanded to love some separate person. They're commanded to love the oneness that they are in with their spouse. This isn't going to another person. This is going to them as one body in the miracle that God does in marriage and bringing two souls together, two bodies, two people together. Then it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. I think this is, there's a, this, this, this is an interesting one for, for guys here because many times that we, we, we forget that we are in that oneness and that the best way for men, I think that you could take this selfishly, but I think there's a bit of Paul that says this, is like, come on, this can help you. This is good for you. This is a good thing because men that are able to serve their wives aren't just serving their wives, they're in many ways serving themselves. Husbands that sacrifice to their wives aren't just sacrificing to another person, they're sacrificing for themselves. It brings about better harmony in the marriage relationship when the husband is able to put aside the things that he values over his spouse and holds fast and becomes one flesh and prefers her desires over his own. This passage does not have a command to go out and make money. It doesn't have a command to go be successful. It doesn't have a command to get your wife a bunch of stuff and to make your name known. But instead, the husband's ministry is to his wife first and foremost. Husbands must prefer their wives above all other things because that is what God did for us through Christ. And to misrepresent that is to misrepresent the gospel and God's love for us. How far-reaching is God's love for us? What would God not give up for us? We know that answer. God gave everything. Husbands are required to give everything they have. They're required to forsake. I think I was, I remember a few years ago, I was in a, a youth group, small group, and John Fun was leading it. We were talking about this topic, and he was saying that, and I, I can't remember what it was, but he, we, we were bragging at a point about our fancy bookshelves and our new cool books, and he's like, if, if Katie wants this gone, I'm getting rid of it. If Katie wants this thing gone, I'm getting rid of it, because that is his priority. The same for me and, and, and my wife. The same for our husbands and, and their wives. What is that thing, husbands, that your wife is saying, we, we got to change this? Is she asking for more time with you? Is she asking for more attention towards the children? Is she asking to help more around the house? What's she asking you to give up? And I think you know the answer of what you need to give up because Christ gave up so much more. And this, I think, is the hard part for us husbands. And I think on a, on a personal note, something that as Kez and I have been working through our marriage, one of the things that I've been learning is to give up time. To give up time of sitting at home or on Sometimes sitting at home playing my own video games, right? Putting a book down. Maybe, and this might sound a little bit, ooh, but I'll say it, maybe not going to a church event to spend time with your spouse. 
because that's what they need at that point? What are we willing to give up? I'm saying that, and I planned those, some of those church events. What are we needing to give up to show our wives how much value they are in our eyes? What are we as men needing to give up to show our wives, show our families, show our communities the all-giving, all-sacrificing love of God? The passage ends with bringing it all together. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He brings it back. Marriage reveals the gospel revealed. Marriage shows the obedience of us as believers to God, and it shows God's all-giving love to us. In the last comments, the last few points I want to be able to make here before we, before we end up here is that I think we don't have to look very far to see that as we look at the world around us, there is a very low view of the husband-wife relationship in marriage. I don't think that's necessarily a shock to anybody. When we look on popular media, wives are portrayed as needy, nagging, and unpleasant to be around, and husbands are, per- are portrayed as being just not smart. I mean, I remember cartoons growing up, and I can't remember a single cartoon or TV show I watched where the, hus- where the dad of the show wasn't in some ways stupid, and the wife wasn't in some ways needy, nagging, or just unpleasant. That was part of the joke in kids' shows I watched growing up. That was the joke. That was funny. And I think sometimes we as the church feed into that sort of a stereotype at different points. I mean, I remember, and I don't think anyone ever came out and said any of that stuff to me to my face, or has, or I hope won't. But I remember that when Kez and I were in our season of engagement, when we were engaged, people would come up and talk to us about how the wedding's going, and all of a sudden they'd be excited, and we'd be excited, and I'd be exhausted from doing all the wedding, from helping out with the wedding planning, not doing all helping. (laughs) And I remember, and I don't think that this was all bad, but I remember, and even still now, as I am only married for two years, very young, I remember when people would come up and there was that moment where you insert marriage joke here, laugh about the struggle, tease the other spouse about some sort of issue that they've wrestled through. Sometimes if it was just a guy and a guy maybe saying something a little bit more edgy or unpleasant about their spouse. It took a while for those jokes to go through, and we all had that, yeah, ha, ha. Uh, but it's great, though. But it's great. And I think that there's a sense of truth in that, but I also think that we have to ask ourselves, how, if we are supposed to have this high view of marriage, of God's love being shown to the world in this marriage relationship, how are you and I showing that in our lives? How are you and I showing our children a high view of marriage? How are you and I showing our community a high view of marriage? Or are we stuck on teasing and joking 
about some of the struggles involved in it. I get it that there are struggles. I recognize that. I don't know the fullness of that. I don't know if anyone of us knows the fullness of that. I know that there are struggles. I know it's not for the faint of heart. But I also know that it is one of the testimonies God has given in this world to show his love to the world, show his love to unique families and to the community around us. When we know a husband and a wife that love each other and that follow this, it stands out. It sticks out, and it's admirable. I think we can all think of that married couple, that hashtag relationship goals, of that couple that's just, man, they, I I know they're not perfect, but man, do they have it. I think there's a bit of that that we're leaning towards because we desire that love, and that love is meant to reflect not just those two people, but a love that is so much bigger than each of us, that being Christ's love for us, our offer of salvation. I think that's attractive on purpose. God does that on purpose. Relationship goals is biblical. How are we showing that? How are you showing that in your marriage? And I think also there's a lot of grace in this. There needs to be grace and mercy and forgiveness in marriage. Again, I, I, reckon, I know that. I think that we can get so caught up on the perfection of this, and I think that we forget that God knows our in, incapabilities of performing this or doing this perfectly. We're going to mess up. We're going to be lazy. We're going to forget to do the dishes or scratch a car or whatever it is that you and your married couple are struggling through right now, we're going to do it. God's grace is sufficient. His kindness doesn't lead to shame or I'm failing as a husband or a wife. God's kindness leads to repentance, which means a putting away of sin and a growing, not a sitting in shame, but a growing, a learning and an adapting. God's grace is sufficient for when we fall short as married couples or when we're looking for a spouse or when we're looking at how to support other married couples. God's grace is sufficient even in this. I've talked long enough. Marriage is a wonderful thing. I am so glad that I did it. I don't regret it for a moment, for a second. It's good. It's holy. It's beautiful. It's God showing his love to the world, to our families, to each other. We get to be a part of that. And many times when I pray, I thank God for showing me his love through my my spouse. And that may be a good prayer request for you and I to have together. This mystery is profound, but I am speaking of Christ and church.